Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Jeff Robinson. He's best known as the lead guitar player for the epic grunge band Blood Circus. Blood Circus was one of the first bands on the sub-pop record label, playing with Tad, Nirvana, and Soundgarden back in the late 80s. In part one of the interview, Jeff talks about his upbringing in Georgia, his experience in the U.S. Navy, his time in the band Extreme Hate, and the formation of Blood Circus. Jeff recounts many stories from his past. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Live Radio, this one entitled Blood Circus, The Jeff Robinson Story. Actually, in the process of uh, remastering all of our recorded output, uh, we have transferred it all to digital now, uh, and we're working with the original uh, reciprocal studio engineer, uh, Chris Hansick, not Jack and Dino, but Chris Hansick, uh, and uh, he's going to be remastering all of our uh, digital or all of our recorded output, and uh, we're hoping to. Uh, put together a CD package, uh, kind of a retrospective. Uh, the impetus for that and uh, a host of other uh, activities that I've pretty much been doing uh, of late in the past year or so was the the request for sync license from uh, Permaseal Productions, which was the production company for Cameron Crowe's uh, Pearl Jam 20. Uh, they approached us and asked us to use our song Six Foot Under and the soundtrack of Pearl Jam 20, which they actually ended up doing. Uh, and we were very, very proud to be considered for that. We, we thought it was Pearl Jam at first, but it wasn't. It was actually Cameron Crowe because uh, Six Foot Under was a song that he uh, listened to uh, or heard in Seattle because uh, he was married to uh, uh, Nancy Wilson, of course, and she's, oh, a, yeah. Seattle, she's a Seattle girl. And uh, it, he was spending time in Seattle, evidently. And uh, this was before singles and everything. And he heard Six Foot Under, and he said, well, you know, the, I, I read, I, I didn't actually speak to Cameron about this, but I, he, I read an interview uh, with him about his experience of listening to Six Foot Under. And uh, that was the reason why he included it in the documentary. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we were stoked when we heard that. I mean, it would have been cool, you know, for the guys in Pearl Jam to say, hey, you know, look, can, can we use your song? That would have been equally awesome. But to, to hear that Cameron, the movie maker, you know, the, yeah. cre- the cream columnist, you know, a guy whose columns I used to read when I was 17 years old, uh, 
it, it was pretty interesting. I first learned about your band when I was in college. A friend of mine sent me a Sub Pop two or a uh, cassette, and it had Sub Pop two hundred on one side and the Nirvana Bleach album on the other. And I heard the, the Outback song, and I go, "Wow, what is this? This is great!" Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Outback. Yeah, that that was a good song. That was uh, actually on the jukebox at the Satyricon in Portland. Oh, nice. <laughs> when we uh, when we and also six foot under two singles were were on that jukebox when we when we would travel to portland we we did several west coast tours and portland was always our first stop uh coming down from seattle and of course i live in portland now and uh oh okay that's where you're at all right yeah yeah, yeah. well let's get into uh, some of your background i'd like to know where you were born where you grew up and what kind of musical influences you had growing up you know what were your parents listening to what was kind of inspiring you? Well, I'm I'm from Georgia. Uh, I was born in Atlanta, and uh, uh, obviously Georgia is and was uh, part of the Bible Belt, and so I had a lot of uh, church music. I have a very. My father was a Baptist minister uh, for a while. He's no longer a Baptist minister, uh, but. Uh, he's probably the farthest thing from being a minister now, but, uh, I, uh, uh my grandfather, um, uh, had a guitar and I remember that guitar probably from the time I was about three years old and, uh, I was always drawn to it and, uh, I always sang and, uh, my mom and my dad both sang in the choir uh, my mom was a piano player, and her mother was a piano player, and my dad played a little bit of piano, and my dad had classical records. Uh, um, we, I pretty much grew up in poverty, but he was a, he was able to somehow manage to get a record player, uh, and it was actually a stereo. I think it was stereo. At any rate, one of my first memories was... Waking up one morning, I was probably three or four, maybe two, I don't know. And uh, I was messing around with his stereo, and I remember getting thrown around the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that, honestly, I, honest to God, that's one of my first memories. But <laughs> uh, I was always fascinated with music. Uh, I, uh, my dad had classical records. My mom was more inclined to the pop music of the time. 
Uh, God forbid that she listened to uh, some of the soul music that was happening, but she did like some of it. And uh, uh, as you might imagine, there was a uh, somewhat uh, uh, racist uh, culture that I was brought up in uh, that I uh, never quite understood. Uh, But at any rate, uh, as many young Southern boys of my uh, of that time, I I ended up beginning to hate my father, and uh, not to get too deep into the uh, uh, the psycho story, but uh, I I was a rebel. I although I did love classical music and I listened to those records repeatedly. I eventually got my own record player. My father uh, eventually began work for a, a reasonably good job. Uh, and uh, for an airline and so our economic status gradually improved to the point to where when i was in the third grade we moved to a farm out in the country and we had property uh, 20 acres and we had cows and chickens and hogs and uh coon dogs and uh we uh, uh we according by my father's standards we we pretty much had it made but i still i still hated him and uh, continued to listen to what I wanted to listen to. And, uh, of course, the Beatles were largely influenced. It was forbidden for me to listen to the Beatles. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, because of our, you know, our church, our church underpinning. And then the monkeys came along, and I was probably about eight when that happened. And uh, the monkeys really impressed me. And that was, I kind of latched on to that. It was okay. The Beatles had, you know, they had become hippies. And uh, the monkeys weren't hippies. You know, they were clean cut. But as I got older, I, I began to listen to more of everything. And I remember having a transistor radio. And it would pick up a, a station in Macon. Because we had moved further south from Atlanta. And that... That AM station in Macon, and I can't remember the call letters, but I listened to Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, uh, Dionne Warwick. Uh, I listened to all the the great soul and rhythm and blues standards. And at some point in time, I heard Booker T and the MGs, and that was pretty much when the, the die was cast for me. And, uh, uh, and I began to listened to a lot more. I got more into uh, more hippie or heady kind of music. So I started listening to the Almond Brothers and uh, uh, Leonard Skinner a little bit. And gradually uh, I heard uh, Stairway to Heaven for the first time. And that was uh, between the Almond Brothers and Led Zeppelin. I, by that time I was already seriously playing guitar. I had gotten my own guitar and my grandfather uh, had went to, uh, he got an amplifier for me from the pawn shop. And, uh, and me and my brother created a band. Uh, he, uh, I, tr- I traded my, uh, tr- I played trombone in fourth grade. And uh, the school that we moved to didn't have a band program. So in fifth grade, I didn't have a trombone program. So I traded my trombone for an old Gretsch guitar. It was a solid body, single pickup on the bridge, Gretsch. And it was the first decent guitar I ever had. And about, I had been playing since I was about eight. 
and uh, I had borrowed my grandfather's guitar, and then my father got a guitar, and then my father got a new guitar, and I got his old one, and it was an old Stella, which coincidentally uh, was the same the same brand that uh, Lead Belly played. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> at any rate, but I don't go that far back. I had never even heard of Lead Belly at that time. Yeah, yeah. But I started I started picking stuff up and. I never really had a lesson, and uh, I, but, but like I said, by the time, it was seventh grade, and I heard Stairway to Heaven, I mean, it was pretty much, I decided what I wanted to do with my life, and nobody was going to, you know, keep me from doing that, so I started a band with my brother, he, uh, my grandfather bought him a little cheap Japanese uh, jazz-based copy, and uh, we we had a friend named Mark Sherliza who played drums with us, and that was our first band, and I was probably... 13 we played my sister's birthday party we played her friend's birthday parties and we just played just for fun i mean we were seriously kids but then i uh by the time i was like i was 15 there were some guys that lived down the road you know, one guy's name was jimmy green and the other guy's name was danny cox and they used to jam and i would go jam and that was when i seriously started getting into the almond brothers and neil young and uh I uh, I started to want to learn to play lead guitar, and Jimmy kind of taught me a little bit about some blues licks, and uh, ultimately, uh, I got in with this other band, which was a full-on two-drummer, bass player, two-guitar player, front-man, lead singer kind of band, you know, kind of like a Leonard Skinner, only not three guitar players, just two, two drummers. What was the name of that band? Full House Band. <laughs> and so we did... Uh, we did Skinner and Almond Brothers covers and uh, some Credence covers, and we ended up playing quite a lot. We played skate, skating rinks. We played uh, some couple of times. We played clubs, and I was sixteen years old, and I was too young to be in there. And I don't, I don't know how we managed to do that, but we did it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we played like Moose Lodges and uh, Elks clubs and stuff like that, and dances. And we actually played the Homecoming dance as well. And I remember that I was a, a senior in high school, and uh, I remember that feeling. Of, I had finally, all the, those years that I'd been kicked around by kids, because I was just a kind of skinny, nerdy kid, uh, I'd been kicked around by all the bully kids, and here I had finally reached the top. You know, I was a senior in high school playing the junior senior, or not, the, but playing the homecoming dance. Now, yeah, yeah. I, and that pretty much cast me into an instant celebrity in the school. And then my mom and dad got a divorce and I joined the Navy. And, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went in the Navy and I hooked up, eventually hooked up with some guys. I got a ship and I hooked up with some guys on my ship and we had a band. We played covers at a tavern in uh, Bremerton called Scotty's. Huh. And... Uh, we played that uh, probably for about five months straight. We played there every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. I remember that, and uh, it was the the place was always packed. They paid us good. So that explains how you got to Seattle. Then I understand. That's right. I went to the Coast Guard Academy. I was on the Mellon, which is out of Seattle, and uh, we had a band on there. We played in the sonar room because they had taken all the sonar equipment off and they had turned it into a soda locker. <laughs> so we used the, uh, I, mean, okay. I, had, to, I had to submit a, a chit to the XO, uh, asking him if we could have permission to use 
lower sound is what they called it uh, as a rock room. And they said, sure. All right. No problem. <laughs> That's totally awesome. See, we wouldn't, we couldn't do that on our ship. I was on a guided missile destroyer and uh, we actually, me and the, the other guitar player, we would practice down by the reefer ducks. He was a gunner's mate. So, and he, he always practiced in one of the turrets. Uh, under one, yeah, I'm serious. Yeah, it's yeah, that's funny. Be, and uh, uh, but and most of what I did aboard ship was acoustic stuff, and then we would work out songs and stuff. But then once we got to Bremerton, we all got places in town because there's no way we were going to stay on that barge because they, when you go into Bremerton, you go into overhaul, and uh, they take a, they gut the ship, you know and redo everything inside the ship. So they, they have a thing, they pull up what they call a barge next to it. And, uh, that's actually where I had to spend a night when I had duty. <laughs> and, uh, I hated that thing. That barge was actually used to carry back. Uh, it was a, what they called a, uh, a hospital barge, but in reality, it was basically a giant hearse is what I'm <laughs> being yeah, I'm not kidding. Oh, so oh, serious, I see some serious spirits on that barge, but I, anyway, I hated that damn thing. Anyway, it was it was awful. So we got I we meeting to a couple of other guys. We got a place in town, and then that was when I started seriously playing in that band. And I remember I, I was a bass player at the time, and uh, I because there was already too many guitar players, so I I, I could play you know I I could play piano, I could play drums, I could play bass. It didn't matter. But I, I had to rent a bass. I didn't even own a bass at the time. So I had to rent a bass at the music store in Bremerton. And it was a guild, one of those guild uh, single pickup deals. It was basically just a, a board with a neck bolted on it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember playing. But eventually, when I did buy a bass, I bought one just like it. On that, the one that I rented and played was black, but the, the one that I bought eventually was a natural bass, and it went with my Stratocaster. See, I, I got a Stratocaster brand new in 1973. I, I worked in a cotton mill and a cannery to earn the money to buy that thing. Wow. And I paid, I remember paying $325 for that guitar. But that guitar, I still have that guitar. Nice. Yeah, it's a it's a seventy three and a half uh, hardtail natural. The body is one piece of wood. It's not it's not glued together. It's not laminated, and uh, it's a one piece ne- maple neck, and it's, it weighs about twelve pounds. It's a re- really heavy strap. But I'm surprised I still have that guitar. I wish I still had that Gretsch, man. I tell you what, that thing that was a cool guitar. It was like a like one of those Les Paul Juniors or a melody maker, you know, it was basically mahogany had the five, you know, the, the two and four headstock where you had two on one side and four on the other. Oh yeah. Uh, on the tuning. That was kind of interesting. I, I've looked on eBay and I've seen them and they, they go for about 1500, $2,000. But yeah, I think I paid 80 bucks for that thing. What what year was that that you were in the Navy? I was in from 77 to 81. Okay, so at some point, that's when we kind of entered the timeline when the, the Seattle hardcore band Extreme Hates. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Dave Brungard and Bob O'Leary and Jeff Chase were cooks, and they got kicked out of the Navy because they were uh, just too out-of-control punk. <laughs> uh, they... they 
we're always getting in trouble, getting drunk in bars and getting in fights. And I got an honorable discharge. I, I did pretty good at staying out of trouble. Even though philosophically I aligned myself with those guys, I just tried to keep my nose clean mm-hmm. because I wanted an honorable discharge. I didn't want to get kicked out. It, I had yeah. somehow I managed to have sense enough to know that at that time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I made up for it later, believe you me. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, you know, when we were in Bremerton, we were in Bremerton a long time, almost two years, a year and a half, something like that. And I lived in a couple of different places in Bremerton. And one of the places that I lived very briefly for about four months, three months, was in this house where Dave and O'Leary and Jeff were. And that was, that we didn't even have heat. I mean, we had to burn stuff in the fireplace and we would go around looking for pallets to break up, to burn it for heat. And, uh, uh, it was cold as you might imagine, Bremerton. And, uh, but that was when I started seriously listening to the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers and uh, Wire and uh, oh, there was this uh, there was this this compilation called Spiral Scratch at the time, and I don't remember who all was on that, but there were some really great bands. Plastic Bertrand was on there. There were you know it was all over the map. There was some really really cool cool stuff the damned and so i became very very keenly interested in punk at that time i i had got you know i in the navy i had gone up to that point where i was like this you know kind of a Dwayne almond kind of well Dwayne almond's always been an idol of mine as well as dickie betts but um i you know i had a mustache you know i had long sideburns i i was even though i was in the navy you know they let us do that and uh, at, there, at some point, I, it changed. And it was probably when I met Dave. Dave was from Denver. Actually, Dave and I ended up writing a bunch of great songs together. Uh, but Dave got, not only did he get kicked out of the Navy, but he was forced to join the Navy instead of jail. <laughs> yeah. So he had it bad coming in the Navy, and he had it bad going out. <laughs> uh, Dave later committed suicide. but. Uh, uh. Yeah, it was, but it, we had a run, and I got out, and I hooked up with those guys. They had a house, and uh, uh, we started seriously writing some really good good songs, and probably in, it's probably some of the best songs that I've ever been a part of, short of Blood Circus. I mean, uh, and uh, we we played the Strand Hotel ballroom. Uh, uh, several times, and every single time that we played, the cops would come. Mm-hmm. But have these in those days, you know, gigs were kind of like raves. They were a lot largely by word of mouth, and the the underground punk scene in Seattle was. Uh, and I'm talking hardcore punk. We're not talking about new wave, uh, uh, visible targets, uh, you know, that kind of punk. Well, I'm talking. Hardcore punk, where the, the you know there's raging, anarchistic. Uh, I hate Reagan. I, you know that whole can of worms where it's just total rebellion. Uh, those gigs were very very uh, uh, intense. Uh, I remember we saw Black Flag at Washington Hall, and that was the first time I had ever seen a riot erupt. <laughs> the result of the band playing. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of people got in trouble. The cops came. It was bad. But uh, I realized that uh, there was a lot of power uh, behind that scene, behind the music, and especially behind the players and the bands. And I, when I heard Black Flag, I, I remember thinking, well, this is a monster sound. And what I meant to my, when I was trying to describe that to friends was is that the total sound was greater than the sum of the separate parts. The band took on this uh, mutated mongrel <laughs> status, and uh, it, what ended up happening was something that was greater than what the individual musicians realized, or maybe they did realize, but it was something greater than what their singular input was. And so we started playing, and Extreme Hate got gigs, and we actually uh, promoted a show at Serbian Hall with Silly Killers, The Living, uh, uh, The Farts, and us. And uh, we, of course, the cops came, and uh, the was at Serbian Hall on Beacon Hill. And that show, there were probably six bands that played, but it was knee-deep in beer cans. I can guarantee you that after the show. <laughs> and we had to clean all that up. As we had rented the space, and from the the people that ran, they were the Serbian club. I got into several brawls, and one one fight that I got into with the, where there were several people. It wasn't. Just, it was never just one, just two people fighting. It was always like three or four against five or six or something like that. And one of which was Duff McKagan. And, oh, really? <laughs> but, you know, he was in the living, and he was totally into that scene, and of course, and. uh all the people, and there were lots of people. I remember there was this guy named Upchuck who was really cool. He was kind of a friend of mine. I, I met him through my, my girlfriend at the time. So Extreme Hate played, you know, and then me and my girlfriend ended up getting pregnant. And uh, I realized that I was going to have to start providing for a family. So uh, I took a job that was offered to me in Georgia. So we moved to Georgia, and I started working for Lockheed. That kind of turned off my... Uh, musical output for that time. Then me and my wife broke up and, uh, she basically without asking me or uh, even telling me, uh, she took the kids and left. Yeah. And I didn't know where they were <laughs> for a long time. I figured that they'd come back to Seattle. They ended up in Tacoma. Anyway, I was, I was working for Lockheed and then Boeing came to recruit us. Yeah. And I thought, well, I think I need to be where my kids are. So I took took a job, and I started working for Boeing. And then from there, that was when I hooked back up. I guess I skipped over a, a huge part, which is the part where I met Doug. And that was after Extreme Hate broke up, because Dave had just turned into this self-destructive, drug-taking, alcohol-consuming vortex. And... uh. Doug and Valerie approached me after a, an extreme hate gig and said, Hey, would you like to jam with us? And I said, sure. So we started kind of playing this goth thing that Valerie had a bunch of songs. Valerie was from Ann Arbor and she went later after us later went on to create the band Baba Yaga. But, uh, me and Doug and this guy named Tom, who was a bass player who lived up in Ballard, um, uh, was uh, we were what we called the Blackbirds. 
And that was where I got to know Doug. And I got to be really good friends with Doug, not just playing music, but me and Doug hung out. And, and it, it, you know, I got pretty close to Doug and Tom, for that matter. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I moved back to Atlanta, Tom rode with me to help me. I drove across the country with a uh, uh, U-Haul. So we, anyway, we moved to Atlanta, and then I got kind of stuck into the blue-collar 9-to-5 thing. And then... She took off with the kids, and there I was. I was a single guy, so I started looking at playing bands again. Uh, I sat in and played with this band called Sea Roxity at the time, which was another kind of a goth kind of thing and really dark, dank guitar chords and not a whole lot of uh, lead work, which is what I really loved. I, you know, I Captain Sensible was my, I mean, I love that guy. I still love him. I, every time I listen to him, it, it makes my... Chills go down my spine. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's a great player, but that didn't pan out. And then I was working at Lockheed, and that was when Boeing recruited me. And I said, okay, I'm I'm taking this ticket. I'm going back to Seattle. So I went back to Seattle, and I hooked back up with Doug. Uh, Actually, at first, I hooked up with Valerie, and I started, me and Valerie, we started writing songs again. She would come over to my place, and we were uh, writing songs, and just basically, I was playing guitar, and she was singing. Uh, and I was playing guitar through my amplifier, and she would sing. She had her own little amplifier, and she would sing, and we would work on songs that way. And actually, her boyfriend kind of got jealous. He thought that we were having an affair, <laughs> which we weren't. We were and Valerie and I. We had always been very uh, uh, platonically friends and and uh, professional. You know, I, that was one rule I had: you never never go out with somebody you work with or you play music with. You know, it just screws everything up. But uh, I don't know. I ended up married somebody I work with anyway, so I guess that's fine. But then uh, uh, Doug approached me, and I was working at Boeing, and and, and Doug said, uh, yeah, I've got this kind of metal thing that's going on. I want you to meet this guy. And, well, we've already got a guitar player, but he's he's not very dependable and this and that. And I said, yeah, I'd love it. I'd love it, you know, because I had gotten myself a Rickenbacker guitar, and I'd gotten myself a, a decent amp, and I was – I was, I'd always wanted a Rickenbacker guitar, and then whenever Peter Buck came out and he was playing a Rickenbacker guitar, and I thought, well, shh, I got to get one. So I, I, you know, working at Lockheed, I finally bought one. So I started jamming with Michael and Doug and T-Man and, and Brad. And actually, there were three guitarists there for a while. And finally, Brad just, he wouldn't show up to practice, and finally they kicked him out. And so that was how Blood Circus got started getting on on the you know we started seriously for for some reason me and then the elimination of Brad and then the incorporation of me because Brad was this phenomenal you know like Gary Lee Connor I mean he he played Hendrix like note for note you know and I was like oh well <laughs> I was more laid back I was more conservative and uh, I I played a lot of chords and I just kind of let Michael go for it there initially, you know, and that, that, that helped us to, uh, really start to get some, we started getting some gigs and, uh, uh, our first gig was at community world theater in Tacoma and, uh, somewhere on our Facebook page, you'll find that flyer and all those bands. I, I don't know what some of those bands turned into famous bands, but under different names, mm-hmm. but that was a miserable, miserable gig you know there was probably um, a 
30 people in the audience, you know, and uh, did you ever go to the community world? No, I never went to there. No, basically a theater. There was theater huh. seats and you got up on this big giant stage and you played and it, it was, uh, it was run down and it was fun. We were asked to play there and we, we finally got a gig to play there. And then, but it just, uh, our, our sound, there was a crappy PA, our sound wasn't good. And we, we kind of went back and huddled again after that gig. And we said, well, you know, we're really going to have to get our sound together. If we're, we're going to play, we're going to be playing at shitty clubs like this or shitty sound systems. We're going to have to get a, a sound together that we can depend on. Yeah. So we started practicing three nights a week. And uh, all of us had jobs. We all had families pretty much to support or wives or girlfriends that we were supporting. And, uh, but we still, we were there rehearsals three nights a week three nights a week and we really started to work a really good sound out of that uh, doug had had gotten us a practice space and uh we kept that practice actually the practice space was downstairs from electric eel studios in town and i don't know if you ever heard of electric eel studios but that was where the presidents of the united states recorded their first demo a lot of people recorded there basically as a kind of a demo recording studio because it was really cheap and Zach was really cool, but it was a really rundown place, but there was some good, good sound. We actually recorded there quite a lot too. And, uh, so we, we somehow we, uh, Doug got to talk with, uh, Fred, uh, with dead moon. And we were, and Fred had played in a band called The Scissors. And then he, him and his wife had started this band called Dead Moon. And, uh, of course, now Dead Moon is legendary. Oh, yeah. And, a 54 40 year fight? <laughs> yeah. The, um, so, Fred, I remember seeing Fred playing The Scissors at the Showbox in Seattle when I was in, in the punk rock days. But, uh, anyway, I, he, you know, I, I never met him professionally, although Extreme Hate did go to Portland. Uh, we stayed with the, what was that hardcore band from Portland? Poison Idea? I was in. <laughs> we yeah, yeah. At their house. Yep. We stayed at their <laughs> house and we played picks with them in Portland. This was, that was extreme hate, but flashback up to forward into the future and here we are at Blood Circus again. So we were talking to Fred Cole at, of Dead Moon and he somehow talked to Claudia and then Claudia talked to Fred and they heard our cassette. We had we had made a little cassette, uh, roughly, in our studio. And uh, Fred agreed to let us open for Dead Moon. So we opened for Dead Moon at the Vogue. And that was our first official Seattle gig. That's not a bad gig to start with. <laughs> no, back in the day, though, the Vogue was just this rundown dive bar. Oh, yeah. Really, there was not a lot of attention uh, uh, being thrown at the Vogue. It, it was, I think it was a disco bar, you know, part-time. And... I, it's, and it, it, it continued in that way. I mean, the Vogue was kind of an interesting place. I mean, it was the only place where you had a transvestite attending uh, bar for you. <clears throat> and the transvestite was married to a, a woman, and they both tended bar, and they were both equally hot. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy place, you know, <clears throat> not to get too too deep into my interpersonal. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh so we started playing the Vogue a lot and then finally we landed this gig at the central and that was opening for Soundgarden. 
by that time, our momentum had started. We had gone down to Portland a couple of times and played the Satyricon there. Lo and behold, we had we had cut, gone to Reciprocal and, and recorded on their A-track a few tracks. Basically got a single out of that, those recording sessions, which was Two-Way Street, Six Foot Under. SP-13. I think that's what you'd send in the email. Yeah, how did you get hooked up with Sub Pop? Uh, they approached us. Oh. They they called, they got in touch with us. Originally, before Sub Pop was a bona fide enterprise, it, when it was still pretty much Bruce's fan scene, and he had come out with Sub Pop 100, and he was very, but Bruce and Jonathan, they, they were friends, and they were thinking, and they were working on it. Jonathan was booking gigs for a club called Scoundrel's Lair. And the bands like Feast and uh, H-Hour, which was Tad's band before he became Tad. And I think before Green River broke up, they pay, played there. And uh, we wanted to play that club. So we kept approaching Jonathan with our cassette. And we were saying, Jonathan, finally, and, and basically, Doug said, well, Jonathan hadn't called me back. And I said, damn it, let's go there. So we went there in the afternoon, and it, he was there. We somehow managed to catch him there, and I just stood there and looked at him. And I, I don't you you haven't met me, but I'm six foot six, and I I looked at him and I said, Jonathan, how come you haven't called Doug back? You know, and he got really, really, really white, and he got really scared. And ever since then. <laughs> ever since then there's it, Jonathan has said my god those guys are all truck drivers they'll kill you if you, don't. <laughs> you know and I had a you know like a green army coat my brother was in the army and so he yeah. had a green army coat so I was wearing the green army coat in those days and, and I you know I, I my life wasn't that good I you know I drank and uh, I uh, smoked a lot of reefer and I didn't do drugs, but, uh, you know, I, I was not the happiest of fellows. I mean, I was very happy to have a band, you know, but, you know, I, and I, I've never been a violent personality, but somehow it just, that meeting with Jonathan has ever since, you know, kind of 
in our in our little circle of friends has kind of been a legendary event because Jonathan <laughs> reacted. But of course, Scoundrels Lair closed probably a month after that, and uh, it so it didn't matter anyway. But that kind of kind of brought it full circle. So that finally, Bruce and Jonathan, when they they brought us downstairs to Elliott Bay Books and they brought us out there and they said, "Well, we're going to make a record company." We want to use your sing. We want to use your stuff as our single. We want uh, uh, as one of our singles, and we want you to go into reciprocal and start recording. And we said, we looked at each other, and we said, "Fuck yeah!" <laughs> I mean, what yeah. what else are we going to do? I mean, it was. I was so happy because I never had an opportunity for me to actually be on a label had ever come across, and all the time that I've been playing music, which is okay. Here I am, a 12, 13-year-old kid, uh, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven is playing in my mind as I'm riding the school bus to junior high and uh, dreaming about being a rock star, dreaming that I'm on stage with Jimmy Page, you know, and have a record label, and, well, lo and behold, here I am sitting with some guys that are actually a record label, and they want to, they want me to play on their record label. They want me to have a record with them. I thought that was pretty freaking cool. So they passed around a piece of paper. We signed it. It was a done deal. Little did we know that we had pretty much signed all of our rights away at that time. And uh, in those days, uh, artists weren't protected. So basically, we sold our soul to Jonathan Poneman. (laughs) But it was, it's a good nature. We, we really get along with Jonathan. I do. I, I, I've talked to him. I mean, he's always liked us. There's been a soft spot in his heart for us, even though we were, you know, savaged by the press. And we probably weren't the best band. We were probably the worst band. Uh, we <clears throat> we were honest. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I would say, yeah, the music comes across as very honest, and and that's part of the charm of it, I think. And I, I wouldn't say the worst band at all. I mean, I would say it's a great one of the greatest bands of that Seattle. Era. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, and I uh, very fondly reflect upon it, much the same way that I very fondly reflect upon my experience in the military, even though I hated it at the time with a passion. Uh, but uh, long story short, uh, I read a review. I think it was all music. Uh, that guy, I forget that guy's name. But he wrote, and he pretty much said what you and I have just said. It was very good. But one thing he said was is uh, he didn't like Michael's vocals. That Michael came across as this uh, over-the-top kind of rock star swagger, uh, laying it on thick. And I looked at it when I first read that, and I said, well, what the fuck do you want him to do? <laughs> I mean, he's a rock star, for God's sakes. And that was the whole point. I think, it, 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 honestly, when it, whenever... We were at a gig one time, and this was before Mud Honey. And and Mark was, and me and T Man and Mark were all sitting around at a round table having a beer. And Mark told T Man, he said, "I'm going to have a band just like yours. I want a band just like yours." And I, well, T Man, what do you mean? Well, a guitar player, a guitar player, singer, front man, bass player, drums. And T Man, I said, "Yeah, cool." And little did we know, three weeks later, Mud Honey played their first gig with us at the boat, yeah. or, or not with us. Well, they. But I remember us playing with, with Mud Honey. And I remember thinking and watching Steve play and and watching that whole thing. And I realized, well, these are guys that are very, very good at sounding bad. That 
and in that sense, that irony and that sardonic approach to it was what it was. It was what it was all about. And I realized, oh, my God, they're trying to be like us because they thought we were honestly trying to play bad, (laughs) but we were trying to play good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's classic. That was the epiphany for me. I realized, oh, my God, I was, I better... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought, oh my God, is it that bad, you know? And I, that was the whole loser mentality, you know? Well, yeah. get up there and make some noise, man. <laughs> and But, uh, you know, now I, I think about it, actually, it all worked. You know, it was, it was what came out of us, you know? We didn't really, we didn't try to be anything we weren't, except for Michael. And But I think Michael was, you know, if, if you look at that chronology, and these are all things in essence, that I've learned since. I mean, when I first met Michael, it it was like peeling off layers of an onion. I mean, the guy, even now, I don't know him that well. But as I've learned, he was very well, he had a long legacy of experience of playing in bands in front of people for years and years and years. Of course, the bands didn't make it, but he still had that experience. He had served his time. And I think it, it showed a lot in his performances with Blood Circus. And that he 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 had that confidence, and and then you know here Michael was doing this, and you know well uh, Andy Wood was doing the same thing, and uh, only Andy Wood was really good at it. And I remember I used to see Andy playing Malfunction at the Showbox, and during the punks punk days, and we actually actually Malfunction played at that one gig at Serbian Hall, and I. Uh, and when I came back to Seattle, I, I, I kind of became friends with Andy, and we called him Landrew. That was a nickname that we had for him, because I don't know if you ever saw that Star Trek episode, but there was a guy <clears throat> named Landrew who was like the Lord, and it ended up Landrew was just a computer. But <laughs> anyway, uh, Andy, uh, he made it work. You know, it's that whole rock star swagger. It's way over the top, but it's way beyond over the top. And I'm not to say that Michael was influenced that much by Andy because he didn't know him that well. As a matter of fact, uh, Mother Lovebone was kind of uh, a nemesis of ours because they had sold out and went to L.A. and they were trying to do this whole what we call butt rock thing. We were totally in. We were more about Motorhead, the Cramps, uh, Birthday Party. You know, we were, we were serious, you know, post-punk guys. You know, we, we, we wouldn't, didn't want to affiliate ourselves with any metal whatsoever. <laughs> and no spandex in our band, you know, even though, Mike, <laughs> even though Michael had this whole rock star thing going on. So mm. I think a lot of it was the combination of that rock star swagger with the punk <clears throat> minimalist sentiment <clears throat> that brought about that whole fusion that we now know as, quote, grunge but at the time when the, that we were doing this and mind you we broke up before nevermind ever came out mm-hmm, yeah for us grunge was something you scraped out of your bong when you were out of wheat exactly <laughs> that was what we knew as grunge <laughs> so i don't know it's funny how it all turned out all right that ends part one of the interview with jeff robinson of blood circus stay tuned in a couple of weeks we'll have the next episode up For more Blood Circus, check out their website at bloodcircususa.com.
Going to leave you with a track from Blood Circus's album Primal Rock Therapy. This song entitled Gnarly, the only song about surfing from a grunge band that I've ever heard of. And this is one of Jeff Robinson's personal favorites. a great track from blood circus blood circus is michael anderson guitar and vocals doug day drums tracy t man simmons on bass jeff robinson lead guitar thanks for checking out music live radio i am your host dan sauter and we'll catch you next time